1: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
0: Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with Suk China. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our site at subchina.com. We've got reported stories, we've got editorials, regular columns, a growing library of videos, and of course, our network of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs From the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region, to China's ambitious effort to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I am Kaiser Guo. I am coming to you from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. This week, it's the return of El Maiz Dorado, the man with the golden corn, Mr. Jin and... Jeremy, it's your birthday today. Feliz cumpleaños, amigo. Schumer, yes. quieto, etc.
2: Thank you uh, very much. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm not going to say w- which birthday it is, though. I know. You,
2: know you ladies want to. You know. 75.
0: Right, 75. <laughs> some Something close to that. Um, and, uh, you know, greet the people. How are you?
2: Yeah, I'm very good. Beautiful day here in, in Nashville.
0: Well, what better way to celebrate than talking about the history of diplomacy in the PRC, right?
2: Oh, yeah, what a delightful, what a totally delightful subject. But I actually mean that because um, it's we don't have a lot of ways of understanding how the Chinese government is thinking. You know, we have propaganda, we have sort of semi propaganda, commercial media, and we have diplomats. They're one of the few sources of information sort of from the heart of the beast. So Hmm. it's a really fascinating subject.
0: Well, today we are delighted to be joined by one Peter Martin, correspondent for Bloomberg and author of a highly readable and quite insightful book all about China's diplomacy, China's Civilian Army the Making of Wolf Warrior Diplomacy, uh, which has just come out in its uh, second print run uh, globally. It draws on extensive interviews as well as archival work and the published Chinese-language memoirs of many retired diplomats. Uh, Last week, as you remember, we ran an interview that I actually recorded in late July with Ambassador Huang Ping, who is consul general to China's New York consulate. And as promised in that show, we were going to talk about what Ambassador Huang had to say and how it squares with what Pete describes in his Peter Martin welcome to Seneca thanks so much for having me delighted delighted uh your book Pete goes all the way back to the party's very early days and and especially the Joe and role in shaping the party's diplomatic history and, and uh, we are going to talk about Joe and but before we get to him let's go back a little bit further and and talk about the state of diplomatic infrastructure during the Qing dynasty, you know, even before the Opium War, so in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, how, how it developed also in the, the final decades, the last century of the of the dynasty, uh, the origins of of the yama this kind of improvised way that the Qing had to conduct
1: its foreign affairs and so forth. What, what were things like for the diplomats back then? So... Basically, you need to think of foreign ministries as a European institution. This is something that developed in 19th century Europe and spread around the world. And so for for countries outside of Europe, uh, including Qing China, this was kind of an alien approach to foreign affairs, to have one centralized ministry in charge of dealing with all foreign countries. And that was true for the Qing. So you had different departments tasked with dealing with different parts of the world according to their status and kind of the function that they served for the Qing court. It was really only after the Second Opium War, that you had this kind of proto-foreign ministry called the Zhongli Yamen, which was developed. And then after the Boxer Protocols, that China developed a foreign ministry in a form that we would kind of recognize today. I think that's pretty telling, actually. The idea that China's modern diplomatic infrastructure was born out of two of the most humiliating instances in modern Chinese history kind of tells you something about the foundational psychologies that matter there.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, And we'll talk about the narrative of national humiliation, which is, you know, very key to all of that.
2: So, Pete, a few weeks ago, around the time I was finishing your book, a reader sent me an email titled something like The Original Wolf Warriors. And it had some photos taken outside the Chinese embassy in London in 1967 when embassy staff bearing cudgels got into a physical confrontation with British journalists and police. Uh, And it was a good reminder of why your book title makes sense and made sense even before more recent use of the word, uh, you know, before the term wolf warrior was coined. Um, But the person who really shaped the behavior, even of those uh, cudgel-bearing diplomats back then... Was actually cuddly old Joe Lai, the man who was often portrayed as the the sort of the guy who made Mao, Maoist China human, um, and he is uh, he's the main character of your book in in many ways as you trace the the historical underpinnings of Chinese diplomacy and you know his shaping of the Communist Party's first generation of diplomats. So he is canonized as the Communist Party's last perfect revolutionary. But could you say a little more about his early life and some of the events or experiences that shaped his thinking on how diplomacy should be managed and conducted?
1: Yeah, of course. So so Joe was born in the late 19th century to a kind of genteel family that had hit on hard times. He was raised by an aunt who was incredibly devoted and, and doting toward him. And he witnessed China go through this kind of diplomatic and national nadir that we had that we discussed just now. And in that kind of environment, Joe was drawn to Marxism. So when he studied abroad and lived in Japan, Germany, France, briefly visited England, he began to develop Marxist ideas and and eventually became one of the earlier members of of the Communist Party, helping to start a, a Paris branch for it. And Joe from, you know, that very early period was intrigued about the need for the party to build international ties and to reach out to the outside world as a source of strength.
0: We'll talk a little bit more about what Joe and Larry's role was. Uh, the early chapters of your book, though, they focus on, you know, this, as we said, this centrality of the, the narrative of national humiliation and how it really informed and, and keeps on informing the conception of... Uh, and the practice of diplomacy in in china uh, not that you know national humiliation i should remind people was the sole preserve of the communists i think it's it's good to remember that john kai shek himself uh, for 20 years wrote avenge humiliation in his diary every single day so yeah i mean it's it's a it's a pretty Keep piece of it, and you, you, you mentioned that, that that was part of the formative experience of it that these um, these events that you mentioned in the 19th century and after the turn of the century uh, with the boxer protocols, you know they happen at these moments of, of, of you know kind of maximal humiliation. How does that go on to to shape uh, diplomacy all the way up to, to the present?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, as I mentioned, it's it's crucial to understanding the institutional foundations of the foreign ministry. And I think it's also really important to remember that for a lot of China's early diplomats, uh, national humiliation was a lived experience. This is something that we're used to thinking of now as a kind of CCP talking point. An example that jumped out to me was Wu Jiamin, who would go on to be China's ambassador in Paris as a kid was playing outside the French embassy in Nanjing and had a dog set on him for, for kind of playing out in the streets there. And, you know, the guy, the guy went on to serve in Paris and to go through this process of seeing China gradually and slowly treated like an equal. But I think that left an indelible mark on China's early diplomats. And I, and I think it's, it's shaped the institutional culture of Chinese diplomacy, as well. You know, this, this idea that you need to be constantly vigilant against even the smallest slights, uh, the smallest dismissals of China's status has been really, really crucial. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh,
2: so uh, we uh, you just were talking about France and uh, uh, de Gaulle uh, said nations don't have friends, only interests. But China has long used this old friend of China Designation and it still uses it, but it it dates uh, all the way back to Yan'an. Can you talk about what friendship has typically meant uh, in China uh, to the, the the Communist Party and what it means now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think this is something that I wish more people dealing with China understood. You know, this this concept of friendship has a very specific meaning in Chinese foreign relations. The best definition I've heard is that it's it's someone who the, the CCP believes will give China the benefit of the doubt in their um, mm. assessments of the country. Uh, so it's not necessarily someone they consider totally uncritical, but it's someone who will be given special access, opportunities to interview top leaders and visit places that, that others might not be able to go in exchange for maybe tempering your, your message a little bit. And so there have been a, a variety of these these figures throughout PRC diplomatic history, one of the most prominent in the early days in the 1930s was the American journalist Edgar Snow, you know, Henry Kissinger has been given the title, Lee Kuan Yu got it. And, the, you know, I would argue that some of the influencers who have been sent to Xinjiang recently also probably fall in that broad framework of, of quote unquote friendship diplomacy.
0: Sure, sure, for sure. I mean, these days we talk a lot about Edward Snow, the old China hands in various listservs that I've been talking about him a lot because of you know he's been held up as the kind of model that you know what China uh, recently they've been talking about how uh, he's the model of what they want out of a journalist. Now, when you look at at, at his later writings on China, say after the Great Leap Famine you know, the things like the other side of the river and so forth. I can see why anyone would would say he looks like a dupe. He should have known better. He should have. I mean, he he clearly didn't have his eyes open. Uh, He knew he was seeing Potemkin villages. But if you go back to 1936 to, to, you know, when he published Red Star over China, is it really fair to judge him then as a useful idiot, as a dupe? Because, look, I mean— I would have written that book, right? Uh, You stick me in Yanan, you know, with all that that upswell of patriotism, the the the, that spirit of sacrifice. Yanan looked pretty damn noble back then. Uh, What they were doing, by you know, stark contrast to what was happening in the Guomindang camp, uh, looked pretty darn good. You know, all the 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 romantic revolutionaries, uh, you know, youth were all flocking to it. We didn't know
1: that the Communist Party was destined to become what it was under Mao later, right? Yeah, you know, I think that's fair. You know, uh, Snow was captivated by this infectious enthusiasm that many early Chinese revolutionaries had, and a sense of optimism in the West about what communism might offer for the, the transformation of, of human societies. You know, there, there were Western academics and writers who went to the Soviet Union and wrote in glowing terms and in kind of similar ways that we now think of as, as naive, but maybe it wasn't quite as clear at the time. And I, I think you can say that of Snow as well. I think if, if I kind of put my journalist hat on, the, the fact that Mao was able to go through word by word the transcripts of what he wrote and that his experience was so closely managed probably should have been warning signs to him. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but certainly it wouldn't be reasonable to have expected him to predict what would transpire in the 50s and 60s. In that slightly more innocent phase of Communist Party history, you know, the party hadn't been through the rectification campaign yet. Mao hadn't developed his cult of personality at that point. And so it, it was somewhat of a different beast. But I think there was also an element of Snow seeing what he wanted to see in the party.
2: I mean, uh, you mentioned, uh, yeah, I'm sort of uh, slightly shaking my head because I was just thinking, uh, Pete, you mentioned sending influences to Xinjiang. I'm not sure if you were talking about these kind of internet influences, but there is a whole generation of little snowlets (laughs) <laughs> in, uh, in, in, in China now who are yeah. like vloggers on YouTube who go to Xinjiang and see only uh, beautiful pastures and happy dancing minorities, which, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, some of them, I, I don't think they're stupid, but they're for some reason slightly gullible, I suppose. There's no reason to think that Edgar Snow was, um, uh, you know, any different. Yeah, I, I'm even more cynical
0: than you about these, these people. I suspect that they're just doing it because they're making money. I, I can't believe that they are just so willfully blind to some of the things that even, you know, Beijing talks about pretty openly and and how unacceptable these things are. Anyway, um one of those rare instances where I'm going to be more cynical than Jeremy. Huh?
2: I, I don't know. I mean, how much money can they be making? I mean, if that's what they're doing it for, that's pretty sad. Anyhow. Uh,
0: um <laughs> So Peter your uh, your your book introduces the reader to quite a number I mean it's a manageable number but of of important figures in the PRC's diplomatic history so we've talked about Zhou Enlai uh but also you know to some of his contemporaries like Wang Jiaxiang and to uh Huang Hua who was actually Edgar Snow's translator and later on went on to be you know foreign minister in the critical years after Joe's death It's really fascinating I really enjoyed those chapters uh, let's do though, a quick Rundown of the dramatis personae in the book, uh, looking uh, at some of these diplomats, especially in the post-Mao period, and and the issues and the circumstances that they had to wrestle with, uh, and the the contributions, their diplomatic styles, uh, their political predilections, and maybe we can skip all the way up to the '80s and start with uh, Chen Shichun, who I think might be a a good person to start with. What should we all know about
1: Chen? i think I think the first thing you should know is that when you ask people in Washington to recall their memories of him uh they smile immediately right which is, which is really telling that is not the case if you ask them to recall their memories of young ji it's very uh <laughs> it's very very different um Chem was this kind of bright eyed smart, witty character who uh who studied in the Soviet Union as a young man was very enamored with the system when he first arrived, went back to visit later and was kind of struck by how the society hadn't moved on in in the way that he might have expected. Rose to prominence in in the 80s and then really became the face of China's fight back in the wake of the Tiananmen Massacre. Right, right, right. Very important figure.
2: So another person, oh, maybe you could just uh, give us a sketch of, is Dai Bingguo, who many uh, people like me probably believed was foreign minister, but in fact was uh, a state counselor. But he was a, a he played an important role in the in the solid days of U.S. China relations uh, in the Hu Wen era, and he seems to have a fairly good reputation among foreign diplomats. Why why is that?
1: Yeah, I mean, so. Dai is is one of those stories that kind of belongs to the history of the PRC where you see an individual with incredible talent who, who genuinely wouldn't have risen to such prominence without the communist revolution. He was born into absolutely staggering poverty in the south of China. He He would walk Barefoot to school, and and to this day, he, he walks with a. I don't know quite how to describe it, but he's a little bit walk, of a limp, yeah. He, yeah, a little bit of a limp um, because his feet are slightly disfigured from that experience. His hair never turned fully black until he was into adulthood because of malnutrition. Um, so he has this, you know, remarkable story and rose up through the party in the 50s and then as a junior diplomat just at the start of the cultural revolution and he went on really to be i would say the main interlocutor for Hillary Clinton when she was secretary of state leading some of those obama era dialogues which were designed to introduce some stability into the us china relationship and you know he he was one of those figures in prc diplomacy who was capable of taking this Tight leash that that Chinese diplomats are, are kept on, and stretching it a little bit, and taking mm. official talking points and making them more palatable and appealing to his interlocutors. So, so he's he's another person I would say who who tends to evoke quite fond memories when you ask people about him.
0: I guess next up we we have Yang Jiechi and and Wang Yi, I, who I think a lot of Americans will really you know. Will be fresh in their minds from the Anchorage summit. Uh, I, I I think both of them played very big roles in the last dozen years or so. Uh, let's talk about these two. Yang was, of course, ambassador to the U.S. and then foreign minister, and then took over the the leading group on foreign affairs from uh, from uh, Dai Bingguo. Uh, so he's very very senior diplomat, uh, but also known for some pretty memorable outbursts. There's quite a few of the the, the tales of diplomatic overreach uh, in your book that, that f- fig- in which he figures quite prominently. What about, talk about
1: Yang Jiechi. Yeah, I mean, I think that Yang is probably the, you know, if you had to choose one person to personify the Chinese foreign ministry, I think it would probably be Yang. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the arguments I make is that there has kind of been this back and forth between what we now describe as wolf warrior tactics and charm tactics at different periods of the PRC's history. And Yang is Equally capable of doing both, so he was handpicked by Joe and in the nineteen seventies as Joe was looking for a way to build ties for China and develop expertise in foreign affairs in the wake of the Cultural Revolution. He was sent off to study in England. He came back and became an America's hand. So he led George H. W. Bush on a tour of Tibet in the late seventies. He sat by Huang Hua's side. Uh, you know one of one of the most prominent foreign ministers sides is as he delivered diatribes to the reagan administration about taiwan um and he developed this skill set where he would use his kind of perfect english at times to make jokes about things he had read in the new york times culture section and you know, kind of be funny and pithy. And at other times, he would just launch into these withering diatribes, uh, just like he did at Anchorage. And, and you talk to people who have sat through those firsthand, you know, I've, I've had people say that they just wanted to run out of the room because of the intensity of uh, <laughs> that he's capable of mustering. Um, and he's certainly someone who evokes uh, pretty strong emotions. Yeah, yeah, he sure does.
2: Uh, Pete, let's talk about Wang Yi. He figures prominently in your book. He's debonair. He's fluent in Japanese. He has a very impressive resume. He also looks like he wouldn't be much fun to be around when he gets angry. (laughs) Um, What is his reputation and what makes him tick?
1: Yeah, so... I, in, inside the foreign ministry, if you ask people about him, they, they say that, you know, Wang is a true politician, whereas Yang Jiechi is kind of more of a bureaucrat. And I, I think there's, there's some truth to that. And, um, you know, often, oftentimes, you know, he, 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 got very angry with a Canadian journalist in, in 2016 and has uh, has kind of used wolf warrior tactics since then. And we tend to focus on those. But I think it, it is actually kind of interesting to step back for a second and think about the task that he was handed when Xi Jinping came to power in 2012, 2013. Arguably, I think that the most challenging task that any foreign minister has inherited since Chen Chichen in the wake of Tiananmen you know, this was a Chinese leader who wanted to remake China's role in the world to bring it to much greater prominence and seems to have uh, a preference for the foreign ministry taking on much tougher tactics um, than it's used to be to carrying out in the past. And and Wang has handled it with great finesse, I would argue. You know, he has, he has taken the foreign ministry's tone and made it harsher and seems to have stayed on the right side of Xi Jinping. You know, he was promoted to that State Councilor position, which provides him with a, a more senior rank in the government to to just being Foreign Minister. And you know, he he's also someone who's capable of great great charm when he needs to. It's just that that doesn't seem to be top of Xi Jinping's list of priorities for diplomats at the moment. And so he's uh, he's taken on more of the wolf warrior role in in recent years.
0: Yeah. So we mentioned uh, that, that uh, he had been state counselor, and in, in some of these have been in charge of the leading small group on foreign affairs. Would that be analogous to the American National Security Advisor, while
1: Foreign Minister would be analogous to Secretary of State? Is that a good way to think of it? I I would think of Foreign Minister probably is a little bit further down the pecking order than, than Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. The US government has traditionally sort of, well, for the for the last decade plus, has tried to pair up the state councillor with the secretary of state as as kind of a, a person of equal rank. Um, and and Yang probably now has a role, you know, with his his position on the Politburo that's a little bit more similar to national security advisor. I mean, obviously it's it's highly imperfect, but I, I would kind of tend to think of it in those terms.
0: Right, 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 right. So I didn't get a chance to ask Ambassador Huang Ping about the recently departed ambassador to the U.S., Cui Tiankai. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about his tenure as ambassador and the legacy
1: that he left. Yeah, I mean, I I think of Cui as someone who is very much in that, like, charm offensive type mold of, of foreign ministry figures. He rose up in the Asian affairs Sort of section of the foreign ministry. He's an Asia hand, and he when when China was resetting its its ties with Southeast Asia in the nineteen nineties, Tway was one of the figures, together with Wang Yi, who was kind of helping to come up with messaging that might be appealing to that region.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He is equally capable. You know, like wolf warrior tactics have existed long before Xi Jinping, and Tway is equally capable when he needs to of. Blasting his counterparts and getting uh, very, very angry with people. If you if you read some of the accounts of the negotiations over. Uh, Chen Guanchang, when he was in the in the US embassy, Tui was extremely angry with US counterparts. And so, right. you know, he he is also capable of kind of the withering dress down, but but on the whole, he's someone who has tended to err on the side of actually wanting to persuade others of China's point of view. And, you know, interestingly, has has actually publicly differed with, with Zhao Li Jin's tactics in recent years, which which really stands out as a as a kind of rare point of public disagreement there
2: so let 's uh, talk about Jolly Jan I mean so this guy, I first uh, noticed him when he was still uh, i guess a relatively not uh, junior but he uh, he was had a, a minor role in Pakistan at the mission in Karachi originally. Uh, anyway uh, and then but a bit of very vocal twitter account uh, and now he 's the world famous wolf warrior. what can you tell us about Jolly Jan? <laughs>
1: Yeah. So, um, as you, as you say, Zhao was a relatively obscure figure who had served in a junior capacity in in Washington, but had had mainly been a South Asia hand. He was a deputy chief of mission in Islamabad, I think. When he started to build up this quite substantial Twitter following, which at the time was extremely unusual for a Chinese diplomat. Now it's it's, oh, yeah. it's pretty standard, but. But then it really, really wasn't. And uh, he picked a fight on Twitter with former National Security Advisor Susan Rice, which in fact caught the eye of and Kai in, in Washington, who kind of distanced himself and and kind of tacitly apologized to, to Rice over that spat. But it, it shot him to fame in China. And he was promoted to this position of foreign ministry spokesman, making him one of the most prominent faces, not just for the foreign ministry, but for the whole of the Chinese government. And he, he really wasn't on that track before. So it's it's pretty clear that, that that promotion came as a result of these tactics that he undertook on Twitter. And, and since then, as you both know, things have just become more provocative and extreme as, as time has gone on yeah 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 what what remind
2: us what what year was that when he was promoted uh
1: i want to say it was 2017 actually i think it was 2019 um when he, he got into that spat you know for me and i think a lot of other people the trump administration is one long blur um (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah yeah,
2: yeah. I, mean, I mean that is necessary context it didn't come out of uh nowhere we did have several years of trump on twitter lowering the tone um but
0: it was still post uh, pre-covid though i mean i still think of the trump administration in it's pre and post-covid uh especially w- vis-a-vis china but anyway um the last person we should talk about is the new uh ambassador who's who's just taken up uh his position in in dc qingang Uh, Who seems to be, you know, more in the charm offensive uh, kind of camp so far. No? Am I wrong? Uh,
1: I think it depends who you ask. Mm -hmm. So Chin has this background of actually being a kind of UK and Western Europe expert in the foreign ministry. So similar to Tsui. Uh, not an america hand which which is a real break actually in the past, China has tended to appoint people who have served for lengthy stints in the u s or at least at international organizations in the u s to to the ambassador position after a series of of appointments in Britain and dealing with Western Europe. he was appointed head of protocol, which gave him a uh, very significant role in planning Xi Jinping's overseas trips. And lots of photos of him in high-level meetings with Xi, and he was the guy who was dealing with the real granular details of how she would arrive in a building and like what what size the reception would be and all of these things. Uh, so. You know,
2: if I may interrupt, you sure, we, we used a photo of him w- when the uh, appointment was announced uh, f- uh, in a kind of golf cart with Xi Jinping in a Boeing plant near, near Seattle. And he was sitting behind Xi Jinping holding a red folder. Uh, so in that red folder would have been like Xi Jinping's itinerary, basically, is what you're saying.
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, and much more than that. Like, I mean, I have no idea what was in that folder, but (laughs) (laughs) he he was involved in the in the really, really small details of she's visits. And and as you both know, making sure that she is presented in in a way that um, is seen as fair. Fitting with the stature that he has achieved in Chinese politics, and in a way that um, promotes his image at home, is absolutely central to Chinese diplomacy. And so, that was a pretty that was a pretty hefty task for him. And, and he seems to have handled it in a way that was uh, satisfactory to the boss. Um, his next position before. Um, you know, he he really hit a top job was uh, as vice minister dealing with European affairs. And in that role, um if you talk to European diplomats who who dealt with him in Beijing, he he could be pretty curt and direct. And I you know, he wasn't kind of into to public Wolf Warrior tactics, but in in, in private I I understand that he was. He also has, of course, as his time as foreign ministry spokesman a a great deal of media experience. Yeah, um yeah and was was quite fond of some some pretty direct put-downs of Western media too.
2: So w- one of the things I guess you know that you must be asked about constantly is you know how do we understand wolf warriorness uh, you know what does it mean what causes it and um, w- one of the uh, things that has become a part of that debate recently is uh, Xi Jinping's speech uh, earlier this summer that called on officials to present a trustworthy lovable and respectable image which was interpreted in in various ways well, what did you make of that speech?
1: I, I thought I thought it was really interesting. You know, there's there's a great deal of art that goes into understanding any utterances from Xi Jinping, and you know his remarks on this were brief, so I wouldn't I wouldn't want to read too much into it. But what what I think his remarks showed was kind of a, a, a tacit recognition that some of China's diplomatic tactics, um, external affairs tactics, have gone a little bit too far and have generated a backlash. Um, but I, I thought what was striking about that recognition was actually the, the limitations placed on it, right? He was talking about t- telling China's story in a more effective way. Um, he wasn't talking about policy change. And when you look now at the, the, the scale and the depth of the backlash against China in a lot of countries, um, where you know it, it's caused by China's industrial policies, China's policies in Xinjiang, uh, you know, the, the abolition of presidential term limits and all, all of these things, which have kind of slowly chipped away at support for engagement with China. And, and without policy change, I, I think it's quite hard to see how just tweaking the messaging will um, will make much difference. And and actually, if you look at the Twitter accounts of, of Chinese diplomats in the last few weeks, I'm not even sure they've changed the messaging all that much. <laughs> uh,
0: I fear not. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the source material that you used for this. I said there, there were interviews, obviously, that you, you managed to get. Uh, the most significant thing, though, I think, was these memoirs that were written by former Chinese diplomats. Um, you've said elsewhere that you were able to find over a 100 such memoirs. Uh, to To what extent could they actually write freely about their experiences once out of office? I mean, how candid are these things?
1: Yeah, I mean— I wouldn't recommend them as anyone sort of beach reading they're pretty they're pretty tough to to get through <laughs> So I started out with kind of one or two, and I, I knew that Daibengor had a memoir and that Li Jiaxing had one. And I started out looking at those, and, and you know, once you get through this like turgid detail about, then there was another meeting, and that was followed by another meeting. You you, <laughs> you get some nice little kind of personal insights and asides where I started to think like, well, if I had enough of these things, maybe it could add up to something. And so I started using. Baidu to just every keyword combination I could think of. And I realized that, ah, oh, there are loads of them and, and they tend not to be published by very prominent publishing houses, you know? So it's like Liaoning people's press and way ah. people's <laughs> press. And I, I, I don't know how many copies most of these things sold. I, I can't imagine that it was very many, but, but you know, a, a lot of them came out in the nineties and the two thousands. And, and you both know, like they were, great limits on what could be said and what couldn't be said even back then but but compared to now it was a period of relative openness and so people were kind of able to reflect within the bounds of what was allowed on, on their historical experiences and and oftentimes if you took their personal reflections and lined them up with the timeline of Chinese history it became even more interesting so you know people would talk about how in the late 1950s they were really hungry and their members of their family died. And, you know, you, you could line that up with the chronology of the Great Leap Forward and, and start to put something together. And the, the same for the Tiananmen Massacre. You know, no one was able to really address it head on. But they could talk about how people would counsel on lunches for them or stand them up for, for meetings. And so, you know, it, it's kind of like taking shards of glass and trying to make something... Uh, something out of it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: are any of them at all readable?
1: Um depends on your <laughs> definition of uh readable. They all they're <laughs> all quite hard work. But I would say um you know so so I really I really enjoyed Gung Biao's memoir and Kerhua's memoir. So Gung was a one of these PLA generals who was made into an ambassador. Uh-huh. And uh, so, you, so you get some of the flavor of the very early foreign ministry and just how alien kind of inter- the world of international diplomacy was to those guys. Um, and he, it's also very interesting to read because one of Xi Jinping's very first jobs was as an aide to Gung in the Ministry of Defense. So when, you know, he doesn't talk about Xi in the memoir, but once you have that context, it starts to become a little bit more intriguing mm-hmm. The other figure who, kind of on a similar note, who, who really fascinated me, and this was by far my favorite of the memoirs, was was Hua, who was ambassador to London and was Xi Jinping's first father-in-law. Um, so oh, that, right, that, right, right. Yeah, that marriage didn't last, but but Ker was really a very bold and free-thinking guy. He went and served in London and had this, of course, very orthodox communist take on what uk society was going to be like and he discovered the national health service and that his kid could get treated there for free and you know he watched the start of the the thatcher revolution and all of the strengths and weaknesses of of british democracy and and he wrote cables back to beijing saying like look guys we need to rethink this because like britain is not on the verge of communist revolution and by the way they don't seem to be expropriating the masses in the way that we initially thought he (laughs) even wanted to write a cable about the advantages of democracy but no one else in the embassy was willing to put their name on it so he didn't do that and it's that that probably worked out pretty well for him actually given how things turned out
0: if only Xi Jinping had followed his first wife to England, uh, it would have been a very different <laughs> different world we're living in right now. Um, I don't know if, if Wu Jianmin actually wrote one of these memoirs that you read, but I thought there was a quote that you included from him, which I thought was just uh, amazingly insightful. Uh, Wu Jianmin was another one of these very, very prominent uh, diplomats. He had you know, the UN mission and uh, served in the Netherlands as ambassador, uh, quite a few ambassadorships that he'd, he'd had, uh, as well as I think he was vice foreign minister. But uh, The quote that you had from him was, Historically, the Chinese people were bullied into being afraid, into a somewhat unhealthy mindset, where they're overly sensitive to the evaluation of the outside world. If someone says we're good, we're delighted and yet all puffed up. If someone says a couple of bad things about us, we're incredibly sad or angry. It expresses a lack of confidence. Uh, this this particular expression of the old acued is, jingsheng is very recognizable in me. It, I mean, God, I see... Uh, a lot of people who are, who are very much like this uh, that whole kind of the the, the susceptibility to puffery or flattery and the the sensitivity man i it what, a, what what an interesting quote and what a time to be he said, he wrote that in 2015 though, so that's was already into the C
1: period so. he he kept um yes so he actually wrote uh, a series of memoirs it's kind of like it's a, it's a bit of a like um they're all kind of Not the same. One. You can you can you can read one of them. Um, I read I read all of them, but uh, <laughs> one one will suffice. But uh, you know, he kept pushing that message of like moderation and uh, the need for China to to retain this kind of hide and by posture that it had, had for so long, well into Xi Jinping's tenure, and actually he ended up in a very prominent public spat with Hu Jin from the, the Global Times, who, who took objection to that approach.
2: So the foreign ministry in China is uh, generally considered to be a fairly weak government body, and it often has to compete with other players for influence, including the Ministry of Commerce, even state-owned enterprises, and it's uh, kind of squeezed from all sides. W- what makes it uh, so relatively weak and is that uh unusual are they strong foreign min- ministries in other countries or is that just the way it
1: is yeah i i once heard um Kirk Campbell cracked a joke when he he said that people around him in the State Department would would mention how weak the foreign ministry was, and he he would kind of say, "Well, it takes one to know one." So you know, I, I don't think that they tend to be as powerful in most political systems as ministries that are charged with the economy, or, or certainly in authoritarian systems as ministries which which deal with internal security or the or the military. And it, it is true that the foreign ministry is kind of a weak diplomatic player in China. I do think that it's worth focusing on for, and one reason which is that it kind of plays this outsized role in representing China to the world. On, on lots of issues, Xi Jinping and other leaders will speak in kind of these Marxist platitudes, which are very difficult for outsiders to decipher. Chinese business leaders and China's civil society, China's cultural industry is not capable of speaking out in the same way as, you know, the US equivalents are and and so you you end up with this like very small number of people who articulate the government's opinion and the foreign ministry is is definitely one of those institutions i think it's also important to try to think about how the chinese leadership thinks of diplomacy in in the chinese system i don't i don't really buy this uh, analysis, which which is often brought to the table, where it's like, oh, it's it's fighting bureaucratic institutions vying for influence. That that goes on, but I think from the leadership's perspective, it's like diplomacy is one tool, the external propaganda system is another tool, the military is is another one, and so you know, so are the agencies which are charged with implementing economic coercion or providing incentives to other countries. And so they they kind of choose from this litany of different things rather than being actors in the middle with with, you know, bureaucratic chaos swirling around them. So, uh, I, yeah, I guess I, I I kind of conceptualize it slightly differently, if that makes sense. It does. It does make yeah. sense.
0: So, Pete, I mean, as with so many other things, when we look at China today, we have to look at Chinese diplomacy and figure out the correct proportions of continuity and change, right? Discontinuity. Your, your, your book's main thesis is that we can learn a lot about why Chinese diplomats act as they do today by looking at the formative years, of the diplomatic corps under Zhou Enlai, this whole idea of you know Wundong, Jiefangjun, PLA in civilian clothing or whatever. I, I think you make a case really well, but you let's you know I think it's good that we also spell out some of the periods of change that you have to account for in the post Mao period because there are some periods in like for example the pre Olympic post nine eleven period where. Things go pretty swimmingly for for them, and then there there's you know not a lot of wolfy going on. Uh, it seems like Chinese diplomacy takes on a very different character during these times, and uh, there's you know a looser reign. Yeah,
1: yeah. I I think for me the most important characteristic of this like P- People's Liberation Army in civilian clothing that 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 Joe tried to create is discipline. So when mm-hmm. the top leadership articulates um, charming the world as a goal. Um, Chinese diplomats can be pretty effective at going after it. There are always great limitations on on how far they can go and how much leeway they have. But if the goal is to win over foreign opinion, and the objectives are thought of in quite a limited way, like you know, we need to uh, remove sanctions against China in the in the wake of the Tiananmen crackdown and we want to host the Olympics, then actually Chinese diplomats can be incredibly effective at going after that goal. When the priorities of the leadership change and focus more on ideology and cracking down on internal dissent and party orthodoxy, Chinese diplomats tend to respond in a way which stops putting foreign opinion front and center of what they're doing and starts to kind of Look at what the top leadership wants, um, and that that happened under Mao, and I would argue that it's also happening now under Xi.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and we'll get to that. But how how common really is it for in other countries to to see a diplomatic corps, a foreign ministry? deviate at all from the line set by the PM or by the president or, or you know, whatever, whatever autocrat is in charge. I mean, isn't it kind of the norm for diplomats to be, you know, like really all about message discipline? I, I can't imagine that there are states where it's the norm for them to, you know, to, to veer wildly off script.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's totally a, a sliding scale and, and clearly having people freelancing all over the place equally wouldn't be an effective approach toward diplomacy. I guess in China, it comes down to the degree of stringency, which is expected of, of Chinese diplomats. You know, I remember yeah. talking to one of my interviewees was, was Chas Freeman, who I know you guys have, have spoken to on the show before. And, and he, um, he talked about diplomacy as this kind of art of persuasion and this ability to take a set of relatively well-defined talking points and use your cultural knowledge of the place where you're based and and the, the historical context that you've garnered over time and the the mood in the room to kind of massage those messages in a way that's going to be persuasive to others. And I think that at their very best, US diplomats can be extraordinarily effective at doing that. Yeah. It's not the case in every, you know, with every person, but they, they can be really, really very effective. I don't think Chinese diplomats are any less talented, but they they are given far less room to run on that. And uh, I think it's to the detriment of of China's diplomacy, really. Yeah, I I absolutely agree.
2: The only room to run right now seems to be on Twitter, where anything goes. but uh, if uh, China's diplomacy um, has changed uh, a lot with uh, the United States, um, it's changed uh, even more uh, when it comes to middle powers, or at least the Western ones like Australia and Canada. Can you talk about Beijing's middle power diplomacy, or maybe we shouldn't, diplomacy is the wrong word, maybe we should call it, you know, middle policy. power kick in the assery or something. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, how should, uh, how should we understand what's going on uh, with Australia and Canada?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I think it's, it's a, it's a cliche, but it's, it's true that uh, Beijing, above all, resp- responds to power in the international system, right? And when uh, Chinese diplomats need to talk to their US counterparts, they, they might get pretty snippy, and they may deliver some public lectures, but there's always going to be this limit placed on their behavior by the fact that the US has the most powerful military in the world and this dynamic economy that that China needs to trade and interact with. And that limit is not there when Ch- Chinese diplomats are interacting with the UK or Canada or Australia. And so the the behavior can go so much further. Um, just because you know the, the consequences are smaller, and I, I think in some ways those countries have become a little bit of a stage for Chinese diplomats to signal their loyalty back to the Party Center without the the massive repercussions that would would come with behaving the same way toward the U.S.
0: So, so Pete, there is one thing, I mean, just with caveat that I really did think the book was fantastic, but there was one thing I did want to push back on a bit or, or maybe, you know, at, get your take on how you square this, because for most of the book, you encourage us to believe that China's diplomatic corps is very much defined by this strict discipline Uh their unfailing ability to just stay on message, not deviate at all from a party line. And you offer all sorts of examples about how the foreign ministry just, you know, bears that same stamp from its very earliest days when they were building diplomatic capacity just from scratch. So all this is supposed to lead us to an understanding of why China's diplomacy has taken such a hard turn and become so, you know, so pugnacious and so strident. Uh, That is, that's the promise in the title, right? You know, the making of wolf warrior diplomacy. Uh, but it's exactly these early Wolf Warrior episodes that stand out from everything else you discussed, because they're not pre-approved. They're individual initiatives, some of these, you know, real pugilists like, um, you know, Jolly Jen uh, and, and sometimes they even get dressed down. I mean, I guess as we, as I was you know, reading the book, as we were approaching the Trump era, I expected that you were going to present evidence that, you know, Jolly Jen's outbursts were actually authorized, that they were scripted, they were planned, they were by the book. Uh, but you actually say quite the opposite. They weren't, that they were so, you know, a, a cause for, for division. So where did that famous discipline that you'd spent the first four-fifths of the book, you know,
1: convincing of us, suddenly fly off to? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the Cultural Revolution, as a explanation for what's going on now in Chinese politics, often, usually, falls short but actually is really instructive in this case. Huh. So so the the discipline that was built up in the foreign ministry um, is, is very consistent, but there have been periods when it's been challenged a great deal, usually by what's happening in elite politics. So in the Great Leap Forward, the fact that Chinese diplomats were very, very hungry drove them to steal food from the foreign ministry cafeteria and take food from diplomatic receptions to feed their children and they were punished for doing so, and then, and then much, much more dramatically in the Cultural Revolution, as Mao launched this this uh, kind of grassroots political movement aimed at upending political authority in China and um, and transforming Chinese society. Chinese diplomats found themselves kind of out in front of of where the ministry's leadership had had got itself to, and I right. think that. Some, maybe what's going on now is not the same as that, but maybe it rhymes with it, right? Like she set this incredibly assertive tone for Chinese diplomacy and these, these very high expectations about the degree of deference that China would be shown in the world and how it wouldn't truck opposition from any quarter, at home or abroad. And I think that in some ways, uh, individual Chinese diplomats like Zhao Work toward that goal in a way that was um, maybe a little bit faster than than the ministry 's leadership, and so I, I kind of see that breakdown in discipline as being very very similar to to what happened in the culture revolution
0: yeah i mean yeah, no, that 's great i mean it's it 's the spirit and not the letter of of instruction right that that right seem to be. It reminds me, I don't know if you've ever read Ian Kershaw's biographies of Hitler, not to suggest that there's anything similar between C and Hitler, but there's this idea he introduces called (laughs) Many would,
2: Kaiser. (laughs) No need to. Not me, not me.
0: Very cool. (laughs) Uh, Working toward the Fuhrer. I mean, this is not a particular German example either. I mean, we see this in a lot of places where there's this sort of interpretation of what the leader wants and then people sort of work toward. I even use the the phrase work toward, right? Uh, That's are you familiar with that?
1: Yeah. I mean, you, you will in, indeed find the phrase, uh, work towards Xi Jinping's wishes in my book. I didn't, I think, I guess people say like, if you, if you want to lose an argument, bring up the second world war. Right. So like I, <laughs> Godwin's law. It's I didn't, Godwin's I didn't, law, so. I didn't go for it directly, but, but I, I did use, And I did use, I did use some of that idea, but you know I, what? What I think is is really interesting about the wolf warrior phenomenon, especially as it as it plays out on Twitter, is how, in some ways, it's really antithetical to the broader Xi Jinping project. Right? Like, Xi is about party discipline, ideological conformity promoting a vigorous Leninist system for, for China. And having freelancing diplomats on social media is really not the look that he's going for in, in general, whether you look at his approach to the economy, foreign policy, propaganda, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I do think that there will probably be this moment where the place that the bureaucracy gets to comes into line with what she expects. And and I, I, I would assume that we'd see a little bit less freelancing at that point i don't necessarily think it means a softening of tone she seems to like the tough tone but i think maybe we'll see a little bit more uniformity
0: i don't know i mean as long as it's continuing to play well at home to the you know to the shelf of the or whatever the, then it's it may not be kiboshed too quickly
2: yeah. And there's also, there's a lot of sort of state media journalists whose main job seems to have become uh, to be t- Twitter trolls who, who who might take up the mantle if the diplomats are prohibited from speaking up themselves. Yeah. Um, Pete, can we talk about the United Nations, uh, where China does seem to be focusing a lot of effort? Um what do you make of China's activities in the UN? Uh, is its UN diplomacy effective? Uh, you know, and how is this going to be changed by the pandemic?
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I guess that, that China sort of thinks of the UN as a venue where it can make headway when perhaps other venues are, are closed down, right? Like, so bilateral relationship the bilateral relationship with the US, um, and to some extent, Europe is a little bit stuck. But the UN, because of the role of the General Assembly, is an area of great international importance where where China can make its case and feel heard. Um, It's also, you know, China has a preference, I think, for international institutions, which promote quite a traditional view of sovereignty. And, you know, don't talk too much about Universal values and and things that go on beyond the, the traditional remit of nation states, and so China kind of sees the UN in that mold, and and I think uh, sees a way to reinforce its worldview using an international institution, if that makes sense. There's also been you know China introducing resolutions to 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 have Xi Jinping phrases uh, introduced and to to kind of build the the international legitimacy of Xi there. So so uh,
2: another. Thing I'd like to get your take on is the interview Kaiser did with uh, Ambassador Huang Peng, the uh, consul general in in New York, which was, uh, I mean, quite a tough thing to do. You know, I I was uh, a little bit involved in uh, uh, some, you know, looking at the questions in in advance and. It's really tough to get an answer out of a Chinese diplomat when they've prepared for a media interview. I mean they don't really say anything that you couldn't write yourself, actually, if you, you know, pay attention to what Chinese diplomats say. I I, I believe Pete after all the research you've done you could have totally scripted Ambassador Huang Peng's answers but uh, you listened to it am I wrong? did anything stick out or surprise you? Or, uh, well I've you been thinking know. of
1: getting in a Twitter spat with Susan Rice and seeing if I can get myself promoted to the the spokesman job actually <laughs> do it, do it
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I can I can, you know channel uh,
0: J- Jolly Zed pretty well uh, <laughs> but yeah you know seriously though no. anything stick out for me from that I, interview?
1: So I thought that um, he was at his most compelling when he spoke about his personal story, right? Like his, uh, his humble origins, the opportunities he'd got through the diplomatic service, the, the process of learning that China went through. And, and in many ways, that is the best story that the party states got going for it. And he told it, he told it reasonably well. Uh, it was tough for him when it got into the, I, I imagine when he got into the, the questions about Xinjiang and Taiwan, because there is so little space for, for deviation there. Uh, and he's, he's like, got a list as of As in points. little
2: space meaning no f- space at all like zero zilch
1: yeah I, I think that would that would be a reasonable way of it up. Um, so yeah i i thought i thought that that was uh you know he he kind of he kind of made an admirable effort and 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 he he kind of came to the table with a set of messages which had been pretty well defined by yang jiechi and wang yi Right. It's that they tried to offer the U.S. a little get out clause from the escalating um, tensions in the relationship by saying like, oh, you know, welcome, you guys. Like last guy was crazy. We see that things seem to have gone bad, but we're all good now. Right. That was that that would be kind of my summary of some of the early speeches that Young and Wang Yi made. And they've been pretty shocked, I think, to find that the Biden administration is not in that mood at all um and uh i so i kind of i kind of saw the interview when it got to u.s china as as a little bit of a, a reincarnation of those early speeches um from yang and wang
0: yeah i, I absolutely thought so i think uh, that was exactly what i had expected and you know part of me wanted to sort of give him the opportunity to say exactly that and uh he, he rose to it there i think it was it was interesting though that how how you know, you talk about how scripted they are. He used language exactly from the young teachers' uh, responses on things like wolf warrior diplomacy. You know, this this stuff about, you know, we don't bully anyone. We don't do things, uh, but we have spine. Or I think he said we have bones. We have guts. He actually used the word guts. It's not something that colloquially, you know, Chinese people learn right away in in, in English. But uh, what, what did you make of that? I mean, I thought it was remarkable that, you know, he seems to have like actually studied what was acceptable language coming from uh, other people on on that topic?
1: Yeah, so I I definitely recognize the language. I uh, asked Wang Yi a very similar question at the MPC a few years ago and and prompted like an almost identical set of of words from him um, in response. You know, one of the things that U.S. uh, kind of, veterans of dealing with china talk about with with their chinese interlocutors is this this remarkable uh, institutional memory that they have and the incredible recall they have for official talking points you know so mm. you you put a you could you could uh, turn a chinese diplomat around in circles in times square Say the word Taiwan, and uh, and you would get a pitch perfect reply on uh, on the PRC's position. You know, it's uh... but
0: any one of us could do that now. Right? <laughs> I mean, we we know it. We've heard it all so many times. I, don't know. I mean, I I even tried. I gave him this. I used this this this. How would you state the American position on? Not you know, so that he didn't have to put it in his own words. But he he wouldn't even do that. He, uh, that was interesting. That he couldn't really. I knew he knew exactly what I was saying. Uh, and and you,
2: surely you weren't surprised by any of this, Kaiser. I mean, you're not naive. No, I thought
0: there maybe that was, that he would be in a safe space where he could say, you know, this isn't my opinion.
2: A Here safe I'm wait- space? You're kidding me.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm an old
2: friend of China. Yeah. <laughs> One last question, or another question, Pete. Um, If we've gone into some quite some detail about various characters and some of the ideas that animate your book, but if I was going to look for a soundbite for, like, how should we understand the utterances of Chinese diplomats? Like when, when, uh, when we see them on the news, or, or or we see their remarks reported in a news report, like you know, how how should we listen to them?
1: Uh, I mean, I think the key is to remember that domestic politics is always king for Chinese diplomats. So, their their first, second, and third audiences are in Beijing, and you are somewhere way down the list. Um, even if even if they're talking to your news channel or in a bilateral meeting with you, uh, or on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay, I'll remember that.
2: And that answers some of your questions about uh, your recent guest, Kaiser. I think
0: indeed, indeed it does. <laughs> Peter, thank you so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed the book. It has to have been, I think, the most effortlessly readable book uh, that I've come across in quite some time. I learned a ton, uh, found it really engaging, and uh, really enjoyed you know, in- interacting with the ideas in it. Uh, so congrats. Thank you. I appreciate that. I look forward to have you back on the show. But let's move on to recommendations. Uh, First, a very quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. And if you like the work that we do with this show or China Stories or any of the other many shows in our network, the way to show your support is to subscribe to our SupChina Access newsletter. Isn't that right, Jeremy?
2: Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. That is absolutely right, and that's uh, why I was nearly getting distracted because we have a a deadline because we've got to summarize the news for our members every day. Um, So, yeah, let's get on with the show, Kaiser. Yeah, I
0: won't keep you too much longer. Recommendations, you go first.
2: Yeah, so um, before I moved to the United States, there were certain American animals that were always, you know, extremely exotic to me. I grew up in Africa, so rhinos and cheetahs were sort of not that exotic. But armadillos uh, and hummingbirds are just pretty amazing. And so this summer I've discovered hummingbird feeders, which you just fill with uh, sugar water, basically, uh, that you may, you can make, uh, for, you know, uh, in the kitchen. And uh, quite large sections of the United States have hummingbirds, and they're just gorgeous little creatures that, uh, you know, buzz like little helicopters. And uh, it's, uh, it feels to me like uh, little books, uh, comic books I used to read as a kid.
0: So your recommendation is hummingbirds.
2: Is buy hummingbird feeders.
0: Ah, okay. okay. And fill buy them with hum- sugar water. Yeah. <laughs> <I see>. Okay.
2: <laughs> if you Very live good. in certain parts of the United States, which is most of the East, I think.
0: You know what? I, I had a, an animal show up that I wasn't expecting. Which uh, I I mean I've seen all sorts of animals in my neighborhood, but we've got a groundhog living nearby. Oh ah, no, yeah. 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 Nice fat little groundhog. I've been
1: seeing him scurrying around. It's it's pretty funny. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Pete, what do you have for us? So yeah, I, uh, I went on a long drive recently and listened to this podcast series called Dolly Parton's America. As you can ah, even probably great. hear, I'm, I'm not, not native to this land and, uh, it just has got these first, you, you come off with the impression that Dolly Parton is just this songwriting genius, uh, who really had a whole new appreciation for, for her process. But, but you know, it's got these incredible asides about race in America, class, gender, the history of the banjo, like all you know, all kinds of wonderful and unexpected things. So that's that's my recommendation. Uh, yeah, I, I so totally great. second that, and I, as a, an
2: actual Tennessean, uh, you know, it's really it's a fantastic, really really wonderful.
0: She is an absolute national treasure, and yeah, and her her take on Americana is just yeah, it's it's wonderful. Yay. All right. Okay, well, mine is just a, a film. The first time I went back to a movie theater since pandemic, I went with my daughter to see this new film, The Green Knight. Have you guys heard of this? It's, a, it's an adaptation, very close, very faithful, not perfectly faithful to you know the chivalric romance from the 15th century. It's really, it's, it's pretty amazing. Or 14th century. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's the Arthurian story of, of The Green Knight. Uh, visually, it's stunning. It may move a little slowly for some people in parts, but uh, it's a really interesting take. Uh, we, we walked away just, you know, thinking about it for a very long time. So
2: You went to see it in a theater?
0: In a theater, absolutely. Okay. Yeah,
2: yeah. You're not scared of Delta.
0: I wore I wore a mask and so oh. did my daughter.
2: So, okay. You know.
0: Yeah, okay, all right. Uh, so that's it. Uh, Peter, thank you once again. Thank Fantastic. You. Uh, really enjoyed it. Yeah, the book was great. I'm really glad that uh, we could do this book, once again, is called China's Civilian Army, The Making of Wolf Warrior Diplomacy, and uh, give it a read. All right. Jeremy, great to see you, man. Yep. And Pete, thanks once again. Thanks so much. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kai Zheguo. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at News, And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network.